and he told him that they had to get me away from him as soon as possible because they or he was afraid that uh Kirk was going to harm myself or my daughter. Almost $3,000 disappeared from my checking and savings account. That's what started me looking into what was going on. He was stealing money from me and had declared me dead. He's always been a liar. Um, so we just were waiting on, you know, something to catch up to him. We didn't realize it was as bad as what he had been doing. We had no idea. Hey listeners, this is part two of the podcast version of the series A Marriage Con that we are doing here at the Frederick News Post, done by our own Heather Mongiulio. So if you want to catch up with the, the reporting, you can check out our website at the Frederick News Post. But also, we're going to be picking up our story here in part two. So if you are new to this, you want to go back to our last episode to get to where we are now. But first, a quick recap. So we first started the story off with Monica Gabriel, who had married Curtis Williamson, who she had met in high school. A couple years into the marriage, Monica realized that she wasn't getting any mail. And when she finally did get mail, she discovered that she had been declared dead by her husband. Um, This was one of the many things that he did to her. He was also financially controlling and emotionally and physically abusive to Monica. She eventually divorced him in 2012, and that was the last time that she's seen him. But then in 2013, he pops up in West Virginia with a new wife, Stephanie Furr. We also talked to Stephanie about her marriage with Curtis Williamson. He was actually using the name Kurt Williams at the time. So instead of being married to Curtis Williams, she thought she was married to a man that was seven years younger than he actually was. Kurt Williamson also um, allegedly stole from Stephanie's grandmother and declared both Stephanie and her grandmother dead. And Stephanie ended up being arrested as part of Kurt Williamson's schemes. So when she was in jail, that is when she found out that she was not in fact married to Kurt Williams, but Kurt Williamson. And from there, Curtis Williamson goes missing. Until a little bit ago when he popped up in North Carolina. And that's where we left off. I felt sick to my stomach that I had trusted him, that I believed him for so long. But extremely thankful that our relationship only lasted three months. That was Petrina Mattia, Kurt Williamson's last girlfriend that we know of. She met him in late 2018. They'd actually known each other earlier because they worked together in Wells Fargo in 1997. But the two lost touch. So in their years apart, how did Petrina and Curtis Williamson reconnect? So Petrina told me that Curtis Williamson was actually looking for her. And she said that she had heard, or at least he had said that he was looking for her as early as 2011, which um, was when he was married to Monica Gabriel and also uh, emailing and texting and um, trying to date Stephanie Fur for the first time on a dating app. But he was able to get in touch through a friend and he started messaging her on Facebook. Um, I think the first message was like, hey, how are you? And just kind of this, you know, person out of the blue, just reconnecting. And we should say, too, that with talking with different advocates and people who've done research on domestic violence, that this sort of setting up women or getting people lined up if one relationship falls through to have a next person to move to in a relationship is pretty common for abusers. And then with reaching out to Petrina, this time he wasn't as hidden about his um, previous marriages. He had actually talked a lot about Stephanie. Um, He said some pretty nasty things about her and claimed that she had been trying to steal his kid from her, um, had said that she wasn't actually married to him because she was married to another man at the time. Just a bunch of things that 
looked really horrible when Petrina first was messaging and believed this guy that she had known because why would she not believe this man instead of this woman that he was hearing horrible things about? And in your reporting, you talk about Curtis Williamson driving down to North Carolina to meet Petrina again after all of these years. And in your previous stories, you've talked about him being very charming at first and being really willing to be into the relationship with these women. So who was the Curtis Williamson that arrived in North Carolina in late 2018? So this Curtis Williamson was a lawyer. He was working for the Department of Homeland Security. Um, he said that he actually worked within the ICE department. So he said that his law degree came from the College of William and Mary. But when he arrived, Katrina and her daughter, Tara, who I talked to, both said it was a little odd because it looked like he was never working. Um, actually, when he arrived as well, he was just coming down to visit for the holidays. Um, his son, with Stephanie, was supposed to come up and visit him, is what he told both Tara and Katrina. Um, but when he arrived, he came in his uh, white Mitsubishi SUV, which looked like he had everything he o- ever owned in the car. He looked like he had packed everything with him, and he ended up not leaving after the holidays. Yeah, and you paint this picture of Petrina sort of falling for this guy, or at least being interested in him in a relationship. But in terms of her family, they weren't as keen on Curtis Williamson. No, not at all. And it was actually really interesting talking to Tara because with the other women, I didn't always get an outside view of this relationship that Curtis Williamson would have with them. But Tara found it immediately weird that this guy was coming up to stay because when her mom first talked to her about her relationship with Curtis Williamson, it was, hey, I'm getting married. And Tara told me, well, that's really odd because I didn't even know she was talking to anyone. So how can she just be all of a sudden going in and getting married to this person? And this daughter of Petrina, Tara, does she confront her mother about some of these red flags or things that she's concerned about? She said that she didn't really want to confront her. Um, she kind of wanted, you know, it's her mom and she wanted to let her mom live her own life. Um, but she did find it very weird. And she would talk to Curtis Williamson. And she has this uh, great quote where she says it was like he had a placard of a personality. He just, there was no discernible personality that he had. And she said um, that he never looked at people when he was talking to them. He'd always be looking at his phone and he might not even respond right away. She might ask him a question and he'd be on his phone. And then like a minute later, he'd finally respond. And Williamson, with his other relationships, had this history of stealing money or doing things to financially sort of undermine the people he was in relationship with. Did that happen with Petrina? Yes. And it kind of shows how he's cycling a little bit faster. So pretty soon on for the moment that he came down in North Carolina, um, she started noticing that there was a dip in her bank account. And she had given him her, her <clears throat> she had given him her target debit card and asked him to make a couple returns which he did but then he never gave the card back and so she noticed that all of a sudden she had some charges on this uh, debit card that she had not made when she confronted him about that he said oh i'm so sorry like i just got it confused with my card and i'll pay you back um and so that that was the kind of the first time that she noticed anything about the financials. And he wasn't married to her, so he didn't have the financial control over her like he had with his other wives because they weren't married yet. And they didn't share a bank account. But after that, she got, did get a little suspicious, and she started running background checks on him. Um, she's originally from Maryland and used our judicial case search, and she saw that there was a body attachment open for him. So that brings us back to Monica. When we started last episode's podcast, We talked about how I met Monica in the courtroom, 
And so Monica was there because she was supposed to be having an alimony hearing. Curtis Williamson has not paid any of her alimony that he owes her um, for several years. And so there was a body attachment put out for him not showing up to this hearing. And that's the body attachment that Petrina found when she was looking at case search. And so she asked him about it, and he said, oh, it was just a mistake. It hasn't been handled in the records, but it's actually been handled in court already. And she believed him. So this explaining away of things in his past or sort of altering what his history was sounds really similar to what he did with Stephanie and Monica. Were there other similarities that he did with Petrina? Well, yes, he wanted to get married. And that's kind of a theme throughout all of his relationships is he does get engaged to them. I had actually spoken to another woman um, that we just briefly mentioned in our second story that we ran. But she also mentioned that they were engaged at one point, And that was a a year-long relationship, I think. So he just very quickly wants to get married to these women. And it seems like that marriage allows him to sort of get into his wife's or girlfriend's financials, correct? Yeah. With Monica and Stephanie, that's how he got access because he was able to say, hey, don't worry about this bill. I'll cover it. Or like, I'll pay the bills. I'll make sure things are paid off because we share an account. Um, With Petrina, he wasn't able to do that because they weren't married. But she did say that somehow he was able to get a hold of her cards. Um, She's not sure how, but he was able to somehow open up another card and use her bank account. And that became a bit of a mess for her, she said. And you've talked about how Petrina's daughter, Tara, had these concerns as her mother was approaching this decision with marriage and really settling down with this man. What was she thinking and doing? So... Tara just told me she just keeps kept seeing these red flags. Um, she talked to other friends, and they also all saw these red flags. And one of them was that Curtis Williamson also wanted to go on a cruise with her mother. Um, and Petrina also mentioned this to me because she thought it was weird that Curtis Williamson had asked about her life insurance kind of randomly one day. And that kind of tied back to the financials and why Petrina realized something was going on because when they were planning for this cruise, he was supposed to be planning it. But somehow one of the financial agreements that they made with the crews ended up on her bank account and she had never put her card or information on that account so she found that a little bit odd but for tara it was just a red flag first it's the marriage first it's this guy that she had never even heard of now he's living with her mom and now he wants to go on a cruise and another red flag for um, both of them was that he wanted to buy a house um, he was supposed to, he had found like two houses that they liked and he was supposed to purchase one of them. And they were really expensive houses and he never did. But there was one thing that Tara also talked about is that she heard about this guy and he's this lawyer for, you know, the DHS. He's supposed to be making all this types of money. And he said that he liked really expensive cars. And on Facebook, he had these pictures, but he comes up in a Mitsubishi um, or when she looks at his uh, profile, all the pictures kind of look like they were stock images and not real life. And as these red flags start to pile up, what does Tara do? So as you mentioned, it wasn't just Tara. It was actually most of Petrina's family. They were a very close-knit family, and her mother always had this bad sense. Um, and then Tara's uncles got involved as well. And between Tara and her uncles, they kind of started talking about how this guy just didn't seem right. There was just something off about him. And so they started looking into him and they were able to find that he had multiple wives or ex-wives. And Tara decided to reach out to them. So first she tried reaching out to her, not her, his. So first she started reaching out to his first wife, Teresa Selhammer, who we've mentioned before. And she was able to connect with her through text. Um, And then she left a message for Monica 
Um, she wasn't able to get her the first time, but then she did get her the second time. And Monica picks up the phone and she said that she heard the shaky voice on the other line. And it was Tara. And she said that, I think my mom is dating your ex-husband. And so Monica kind of told her everything that happened to her. So Tara is now armed with all this information that paints a larger picture of who Curtis Williamson was. But up till this point, Petrina hasn't really been open to having those conversations about her new boyfriend. Where is Petrina at at this point? So she was actually getting suspicious as well. Um, She noticed that her bank account was being dropped. That She had saw the vacation charges. So she was just feeling like she was losing money. um, And she kind of thought it might have been him. So she's getting suspicious. And then Tara arms her with all this information. And they talk about it. And Petrina, you know, makes sense when she thinks about the background check. Or like finding out he has extra wives. And I think Petrina actually was able to talk to some of them. So... Now she's like, oh, my God, who is this person who's living with me? Um, She decides to go to the police. So she actually filed a police report on March 1st with the Apex Police Department. And then she uh, went to her parents' house, and that's where Curtis Williamson found her. And what does Williamson do when he shows up? So they go out on the porch of her uh, parents' house, and they have this big row. And she tells him that he's... and she tells him that she's spoken to his ex-wife. She kind of she talks about all the um, charges that she's accusing him of. And she tells him, if you ever want to get your stuff, you have to go back to my the house and pick it up. And she had called police so that the police were going to be arriving there at her parents' house, but also at her, uh, her house. So he did flee back to her house. He, she said that he may have gotten a couple kitchen items. She, he got his car and he left. And that's the last time that Petrina has seen Curtis Williamson. And when was that? So that was March 1st. And where has Williamson been since? So that is a pretty good question. Um, we're not quite sure where he is. Um, I have not been able to get a hold of him to even ask him. And even as the series has come out, he, he hasn't called in and none of his family has called in. Um, the women did tell me that they think that he might be in Hagerstown. And they said that they spotted him around the area on April 5th. But other than that, his location has been kind of cold. I've looked in our judicial case search because he has this open body attachment in Maryland to see if he's been served that. Right now it's still active as last time I checked it, which was yesterday. So I do not know where he is. And we should say that Williamson has charges in multiple states. And you have tried multiple times to reach out to him to sort of get his side of the story. And his lack of comment before you've had to verify a lot of what his ex-wives and ex-girlfriends have said through court documents and these different charging documents. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We had hundreds of pages of documents that we looked through, whether it was, you know, the divorce records for Monica or documents that Stephanie um, said that she had, just many different things to kind of verify these claims. And I will say it's been interesting because this is a daily series that comes out. Um, The last one will come out today. But throughout the a series as it dropped, I did get a couple emails from some people who have either dated him or I got one um, a little bit ago that talked about how this guy thinks that he might have more information um, or at least want some information on this person if he's in Hagerstown. So it's been interesting to see who's coming out of the word work to say, oh yeah, I actually did know that guy. And in talking about this series with you, you did all the reporting and the writing on it, but we sort of bounced ideas back and forth. And you had a different approach to the last installment, the fifth article in this series. Could you talk a little bit about why you decided to frame it that way and how you approached the last article? Yes. So one of the things that I really wanted to make sure I did with this series of articles was never make it about Curtis Williamson. He is the reason these women are linked together, but I 
didn't want him to be the feature of the article. I wanted the women to be the feature. The last article in the series is about how these women came together and kind of how they formed, one of them said, a detective agency, essentially, um, because they wanted they want him to go to jail um, or they wouldn't let him at least face the charges that have been levied against him. So it's been very interesting. They talk about how they have, you know, really connected and talk almost every day. Some have met in person. Some have just talked on the phone or some just text. Um, Petrina has reached out to many women um, that she has connected to him. I have tried to reach out to a couple that she has mentioned. Um, But just because he kind of left a paper trail as he was fleeing from each of these women, they were able to connect and find out a couple other women. Or And Petrina and Tara really went on this Facebook rampage. Um, when they posted all this information about him with his picture. And I think that led to more women reaching out to them to be like, hey, I know this guy or hey, I you know, met this guy. Um, and you can kind of see it in our comments. If you ever um, look on our Facebook page or on the comments on the stories, a couple people be like, oh, yeah, like I remember him. I worked with him or I saw that someone said, oh, yeah, we worked with him at Legal in General, like which kind of filled in a uh, gap that we didn't have on what he did at Legal in General. And these women, in one of your stories, you have a quote from one of them talking about how they are rebuilding their lives. They have to get out of this financial debt that he let them in or this being declared dead and all the problems that brings along where it seems that he sort of gets to quote unquote skate by and not face these charges. Can you bring us up to speed on his ex-wives and ex-girlfriends, where they are at and sort of rebuilding their lives? Yeah, so Monica has had several years to build her life, and she does have a job. She still has to carry around a protective order with her. It has expired, but she says she carries it around just in case because she is still worried that he might try to hurt her. Um, so that has been in her purse with her at all times, but she has also has to carry around her birth certificate and other items just to prove that she is alive in case she goes to open up a bank account and the record says, oh, she's deceased. Um, Stephanie's in the middle of coming back to life, essentially, because she was also declared dead. Um, she is out of a lot of money right now, and she doesn't think she'll ever get that back. And then Petrina is kind of still working on the police charges. She's very early on in that procedure, but um, she's also out of three about $3,000. And you mentioned that what happened to Monica with her marriage to Curtis Williamson happened years ago. I mean, this is in 2010, 2011 is when they sort of re- reconnect and look into this marriage. Why are you telling the story now, given that so many years have ha- passed since that story actually happened? Yeah, and it was actually interesting. I was talking with somebody about the series, and they said, well, why is this the first time that I'm hearing about this? And this person it does work in law enforcement. And I, I mentioned that, you know, there were no charges in Frederick. So for the Frederick News Post, there was no reason to pick up on the story because it's hard if you're not seeing charging documents or this is not coming across. And the reason why we were able to get the story is because we had written about another domestic violence series, and that just opened us up to more people telling us their story. We'd actually call, put out a call saying, hey, if you want to share your story, we're here to listen. Um, and that was the way we connected with Monica was because she you know, saw that series. We connected through Facebook and then through email. And then she connected me with through all the other women. With Stephanie's case, I think it's just one of those things where it was actually picked up by the journal, which is one of our sister papers. Um, that's where I actually found some information about their arrest. And it hasn't gone to trial yet. So I think it's hard when you see this seemingly innocent arrest report of these two people who were charged with financial exploitation of elder abuse and theft to realize that there's a much bigger story behind it. I mean, local news reporters are also handling multiple stories a day. And so it can be hard for these cases to catch your attention. And we got lucky that we had sources that were willing to talk with us and 
um, lucky that we had editors that were willing to give us the time to really dig into this. Yeah, one of the, the comments that we had talked about is someone had reached out and sort of said, why are we talking about this now? This happened years ago. Also, this sort of financial abuse or financial exploitation happens all the time, which in my opinion sort of underlines why we should do a story like this. Well, I think this is interesting because you get a lot of different comments on stories like this. You know, some people are really excited that we're doing this. You know, I've heard people say, oh, this should be a Lifetime movie or a Netflix series just because it does have this like element of true crime that's very interesting. But it does talk about something that does happen a lot. And, you know, even reporting on this, there is another series and podcast done by another paper across the country that did something very similar, which just kind of points out that this does happen a lot. And to an extreme, I think when we talk about identity theft or when we talk about con artists it's kind of you know this hollywood uh image of a con artist or of someone who's taking your identity but you do have these people who are using all different elements and for me this one was you know more than just a con artist this is someone who's also abusing his wives and allowed to get away with all what he did because he was able to keep them quiet and isolated yeah in the reporting of this series what did you come across in terms of these sort of holes either in the legal system or in law enforcement that allows this type of thing to continue with not just one case, but with multiple women. So one thing that um, the women actually said is, why wasn't this stopped? And I think it's very difficult because there are multiple levels in multiple cases where this could have gotten stopped. Um, There were no charges in Frederick. Monica did try to file uh, charges in Frederick. And I was not able to get connect with anyone to actually ask, you know, why didn't this get charged? But so that was one area that maybe this could have gotten stopped. Um, But you have to remember by then, Monica's already wife number four. So could they have been stopped before Monica? I'm not sure. With Stephanie, it's hard because he did get tossed into jail and he was able to get out. So it's a question of, you know, why was his bail reduced? Um, Or if he was, you know, they knew that he had family in Maryland. Was there a you must stay in here, you know, in the uh, state? I'm not really sure because I don't know West Virginia law as well as I know Maryland. Um, and then when he was in Maryland jail, why were they able to let him out on um, his own recognizance if he said that he had leukemia without proof that he actually had cancer or was ill? And the reporting also showed some holes in terms of legally stepping in in cases of domestic violence. I know we had talked about emotional abuse and this idea of gaslighting and really undermining a person's sense of reality that in the United States, you really can't charge someone with that um, because it's not physical, it's really hard to prove. Whereas in other places like the United Kingdom, they have passed laws that sort of look at the emotional side of domestic violence and ways in which that abusers can be charged to stop these things before they turn physical or they get even worse. Well, I think that's something that's very interesting that we've done reporting on before because we had written our protective order story together. And one thing that we had heard a lot is even reporting on that domestic violence series that we both did um, or that protective order story was, oh, uh, you know, if there's emotional abuse or a threat of harm, you get a protective order. But then you go to the protective order story and you realize that protective orders are only good for so long. And that's Monica's case. So like her protective order expired and she extended it as much as she could. But she can't prove that she's in active danger right now because she hasn't seen Curtis Williamson in many years. But she still feels like she's in uh, harm's way. And that was a relationship where she was hit. She was strangled. So there is this history of just because he hasn't showed up in her life recently. She has no legal recourse against him. Yeah. And I mean, it it shows an interesting um, paper trail just because these are all public documents that you can go to the courthouse and look at, which is what I did when doing this is I, you know, after meeting with Monica the first 
time, the first thing I did was go to the courthouse and pull all her divorce records and her um, protective orders. And it's not like she's very secretive about this. It's in the divorce paperwork. She lists all the times that he tried to um, abuse her or emo- you know, emotionally abuse her, the financial control. Um, so you just kind of wonder when you have these cases that go through the civil system, maybe they don't always get criminal charges because they're being handled civilly. And we should say that highlighting this one case, you sat in a courtroom and listened to Monica tell her story, but that was in a docket of many protective order cases, and we've sat through many, and that these sort of cases that are more, quote-unquote, traditional or normal of abuse and domestic violence are getting processed by the hundreds, by the thousands in states across the country each and every single day. Yeah, and I mean, we are in a newsroom that we have access to listening to a scanner, and one of the things that you hear almost every day is a call for domestic in progress. So these are cases that sometimes you'll get through police reports because there is a horrible domestic incident that happened, and the police reported on it, and that's kind of what you'll see sometimes in our blotter with like the assault cases. Um, other times you have these stranger stories that just highlight you know, a systematic problem. Um, and domestic violence just tends to be a little bit underreported. So if you have people who really focus on it or you know, build the trust of readers, sometimes you do get people who are willing to speak about their stories, and that kind of leads you to cases like this. I mean, if Monica hadn't seen our domestic violence series um, and reached out or commented on Facebook and we hadn't reached out and said, hey, would you mind sharing your story with us, we probably wouldn't have had this case. And in laying out this story, once you've talked to Monica and the other wives and girlfriends, why did you decide to lay it out in five pieces? So I wanted to give each of the women their own stories because I think, you know, on their own, they probably could have stand as stories, just each each of them. Um, and then the second one was kind of to give one of the first wives her story, but also to kind of build up that backstory that showed a lot of details that you needed to understand how he went from, you know, the fourth wife to the fifth wife to the next girlfriend. Um, and then the fifth one was that extra, I want to show how these women are bonding and to wrap it up and to show how they're, you know, being affected by this situation, how their lives don't just end with that moment that they last see him. And the timing of the series was also significant too, correct? Yeah. So it was very interesting because back in December when I first um, met Monica, I remember coming to you and being like, Wyatt, I've got this story for you. And, you know, we had kind of talked about things that we were going to do. And I said, this is a six month project. Um, and then lo and behold, when Monica reached out in, on March and said, hey, we found another woman, she just saw him, um, we realized that we needed to move quicker because we didn't want to lose him too far away from when we put out the series. But also Monica's death date, um, both of them were kind of right in that period. So I didn't think we could get the story out by March 16th, um, but I did think that we could get it out by April 15th, which we did, um, to kind of show that uh, she died you know, eight years ago. Um, which was like that nice little um, hook into the story. Supposedly died in the eyes of banks and financial institutions. Supposedly died. She was very much alive when she talked to us. And Heather, as this series is wrapping up, I'm wondering where you're sort of at. So first, I'm, I think it might take a day. Just let it sink in that it's done. Um, but then I'm definitely planning to do follow-ups already. We're talking about follow-ups about just looking into how often does this actually happen where you do have con artists because that's one thing people kept saying was, you know, this is happening. It happens all the time. Why is this front page news? And so we kind of want to take that and actually look, does this happen quite often? Um, maybe not to this extreme, but see how often other people take each other's identity or use domestic violence to do that. Um, 
And then the other thing that we're going to hold out for is that, you know, we would always love to hear from more people who were affected by Curtis Williamson. Um, we'd like to hear from Curtis Williamson himself if he wants to talk to us. Um, but I would like to hear from more women um, if they are willing to talk about their stories with him. You know, there was 20 years that we really couldn't account for, and it'd be nice to be able to fill those in. Yeah, because stories like these are really powered by the, the courage of survivors to share their own stories. Yeah, and I, I really want to thank the women um, who talked to me many, many times. Um, I had yeah, two interviews with each of them. Um, most of them lasted 45 minutes. Um, then I emailed them constantly asking for clarification on different things. I mean, this was something where, you know, I actually was talking to Stephanie and she uh, had asked me to do something. So I sent her an email about the story and um, she said, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about this. Like it just keeps bringing things up. So the fact that they were willing to take so much time to recap some of their not so great years um, really meant a lot and really was it meant that we could do this story because they were willing to talk with their names um, and go into details that I know a lot of people wouldn't want to share. And for people who haven't read all the stories, they are online at the com under the series A Marriage Con, and they are well worth your time to read. And I just want to put it out there that if you are someone who's experienced domestic violence um, and are willing to share your story or do you just want to talk about domestic violence um, and maybe raise some issues that you've experienced with the system as well, um, you can always give me a call at 240-215-8609 or reach me at h-m-o-n-g-i-l-i-o at newspost.com. And through this reporting on domestic violence, we have seen that sort of fear and uncertainty about what to do is one of the reasons that people in these situations might not be able to leave them. So for people who might be experiencing domestic violence or abuse, there are a number of local services they can reach out to, including the Hartley House, which people can call at 301-662-8800, or you can contact your local law enforcement. They can put you in touch with some of the resources that are out there. Frederick and Cut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio. And me, Wyatt Massey. And edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week. Bye.